you had some questions that you wanted to ask. Let's bring them up. Might as well start with that. Does anyone have any questions? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I wanted a little more uh, understanding of mind, intellect, ego, and feeling. Uh-huh. Mon, buddhi, ahankara, chitta. And what does that mean mm-hmm. <laughs> to me in my daily life? And how can I use, is there some, can, I, can it be right. a useful tool for me? Or, right. like um, it actually relates... You know, last week we, we um, talked a lot about the, the letter that Swamiji wrote us for Easter, and so we didn't quite finish even the one sutra we were working on. But the one part of the sutra, which was uh, is sutra number three, which says, Then, spiritually free, the sage abides tranquilly in his inner self. That's the third sutra. We've gotten there really fast. Okay, because, we, because of all the reasons we know. So one of the parts that we didn't get to that in Swami's commentary, because if you read, I'm, I'm coming to where you are, but if you read this sutra, we're told that once all the vrittis are neutralized, the sage just lives tranquilly in the inner self. And it's sort of like the same question, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> because I do not live tranquilly in my inner self, so <laughs> is this book not my book? So Swamiji emphasizes two points that are really important. Um, that... The, what he's describing here is not only the result of right action, but is also the method for attaining it. Because to rest tranquilly in your inner self is the state of consciousness you want eventually to present, but you can work toward it by, as, by disciplining yourself to have that attitude, that being the attitude that you want to have. The way Swamiji says... Um, if you want to know peace, practice being peaceful now, especially under adverse circumstances. If you want to know joy, be joyful now. And he, he says that every spiritual fruit, meaning that you know, the, the attainment of a, a spiritual state, um, depends an enormous amount on right attitude. And right attitude is the, the way we approach things. If we're looking for calmness and we're always in a state of tension and anxiety, if our attitude toward life is tense and worried, we're not going to accidentally stumble on peace. If we have an attitude of calm acceptance, even if we may inwardly still be struggling with what's happening, we can at least try to have the right attitude toward the experiences that we're having. That's why he's saying... um, we take, it's an attainment, but it's also the method for getting it. Um, let's see. Just a second. So when we go back now to the mon buddhi and so on, what, what we're talking about there, and it's important to understand this, the word mind, which we use in English, is just, just forget the word mind. It doesn't, we don't really know what we're talking about when we talk about mind. It's very confusing. So what, what Master's describing, which is, is classical here, which is these are the four, um, this is the descent of the undifferentiated infinite into the individuality where, where our soul becomes identified with the physical body, which is ego. This is how it, it comes down. And the four aspects of that consciousness are the first stage is mon, and mon is simply awareness but we haven't put on anything that we're seeing any definitions at all. I mean, this would be 
the highest state of awareness, that we can just be aware. Everything is all light. We don't really see individual forms. We don't identify. Because if in truth, which is, is in truth, we're all manifestations of the infinite, that our, even our sense of separateness is just an illusion, that even the rocks and the grasses are conscious, and everything is made of one substance, the fact that we see it all so differently, I mean, even I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, we can differentiate a thousand things here. We don't just see rays of light. But if we backed up from all of that parsing apart and just saw the source, it's just like when the flow of gas is coming into the different burners, by the time it comes out of the different jets, as that image that Swami always uses, all the little jets of a gas burner, but the source of it is just that one flow. But you have all these little jets, and so you see all the individual ones, and it's called this one and this one and this one and this one, or Master uses the image of sitting in a movie theater and you're watching, this was when movies were projected through film, which they're not now, but it was projected through film. If you sat in the back, you saw the little lens come out and you saw the beam of light. And it would go there and you'd watch this whole movie then you'd look up and you'd realize it was all coming through this beam of light. So all that differentiation was really just one beam of light. You know, this is what's happening with us. Mon just sees the existence of creation but doesn't describe it at all. It's completely without um, differentiation. Okay, and that's a very high state of consciousness really because you've just moved back to the source enough that all you see is the source. Okay, buddhi is considered to be the intellect. And the intellect understands what it's looking at. It realizes that that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's the ocean, that's the beach. You know, this is one physical body and another and another and another. And, and it can tell what's out there. As the example that's always used is the horse. If the horse is just standing there and, and the only aspect of consciousness that you're in is mon, it's just a, a form of light. You have no name for it. You can't describe it. If buddhi is functioning, then you can tell a horse from a caterpillar and a caterpillar from a house and a house from an elephant. And they're still, if you really knew, they're all just vibrations of light, but they're vibrations of light that have taken certain forms. It's interesting here in the next one, the fourth one is how the vrittis cause the indwelling self to assume certain forms. So those forms are perceivable a caterpillar, a house, an elephant, or whatever it might be. But you're still just differentiating. There's, no, there's nothing in you that binds you to maya. You're just perceiving how things are manifesting. So then ahankara is the level of the individual self, the ego, that, that knows that I am in one body, that I am a, a bubble in the sea, and that can perceive its relationship to all of the things that are happening in creation. So, first we see a, a pattern of light, then we recognize that that pattern of light makes a horse, and then we might actually recognize, oh, this is the horse that I'm responsible for. This is my horse. But you still see there's no, um, there's no delusory content to that if, in fact, you are responsible for that horse. You may recognize that this is my body, and this is my mother, and these are my children. You're just stating the facts of how your individual form has manifested. There's still, 
it's more, you're more identified with it than you were before when you were just speaking of this children, this unit of consciousness or whatever it might be. But you're still not really bound. Where you become bound is when, when feeling enters into it and the duality of feeling enters into it, which is what chitta is. When all of a sudden, not only is there undifferentiated consciousness, but it has all these different forms. I have unique relationships with some of those forms and not with others. That's still okay. But then when my happiness becomes dependent on my relationship with those things and how they behave in relation to me. You know, and that's he's put is, it's my horse, fine. I am so happy to see my horse. Which immediately puts you in the position that you will be unhappy if you don't see your horse. And now consciousness and manifested creation cannot just flow in a way that to you is neutral. Now, all of a sudden, we have committed ourselves because we feel a certain way about certain aspects of creation, and by definition, we're also going to feel the opposite about other aspects. Now, in the context of Swami saying, you know, the sage rests tranquilly, how does he say it? The sage, then spiritually free, the sage abides tranquilly in his inner self. So if you're abiding tranquilly in your inner self, you can still be responsible for all the things you have to be responsible for. But as soon as you allow your, your happiness to be conditioned by your, by your relationship to any aspect of creation, your tranquility, by definition, has been lost. So when Swamiji says right attitude, and these are the fruits of spiritual practice, but they are also the means for attaining those fruits, it's the same thing. How do we rest tranquilly in the inner self? Well, we have to constantly be lifting ourselves out of the tendency of that aspect of our nature to want to make its happiness dependent on things that we cannot control and that by definition will not remain the same. I mean, we can, we can experience all of that. We can be, respond, as we were talking about Swami last week, we can respond appropriately, but we don't have to take it personally. It's different to be responsible and to be engaged in something than to take it personally and then begin to feel that this is who I am, identify with it. That's what creates the vritti. That's what creates the center point. And once we have a center point of it, things need to be a certain way in order for me to be happy, then we start building a whole universe of magnetic energy around that. That's a vritti. And yoga is the neutralization of those vrittis. To neutralize them, we have to take out that fundamental thought that my happiness depends on, my unhappiness is caused by. You know, depends on, caused by. <laughs> and so whenever we find ourselves, in, and it's tricky because, you know, the conversation last week about Swamiji's intense bhav of vairagya um, is... Uh, we, when we were discussing that, we were still discussing about the fact that that, that that has never meant in the life of the masters that they hold back from the experience. It's how they, how, they, how they regard themselves in relationship to the experience. And I said about Swamiji, which I've thought about a lot, just because he's impersonal about his feelings doesn't mean that he's not very sensitive in his feelings. 
So you can have a very sensitive sense of my horse and all that my horse is going through and all the things that I may need to do to help my horse. But if it, do, it only becomes really binding when my own happiness rises and falls, my own sense of well-being rises and falls. We can still have waves of feeling pass through us, but we're just, they're just the surface of the ocean. Underneath, there's always joy. As Swami was saying, that's why I spent so much time on his Easter letter, because it's absolutely connected like this to the Patanjali. Does that help? You know, speaking of that aspect of what Swami wrote this morning, I had a a further um, thought about this. Swamiji and I had a very brief exchange of emails after Tuesday night, because some people had actually written to him, concerned about, I believe, what they called his his depressed mood. Okay, I mean, that was the danger of that letter. I no longer feel any enthusiasm, but they're concerned about his depressed mood. And he knew that um, because, of, because I'd been talking to Narayani over the email, that you know, we'd been having some discussions that the, you know, the letter had been spiritually stimulating. And since he knew I was talking about it, he wanted to make sure that I understood that this was not a mood. And uh, uh, I, I, I wrote back, I said, it's, you know, it's a, it's a bob of vairagya, yes, intense vairagya, that's exactly what it is. But this morning when I was contemplating the word mood, I realized what, why he was so emphatic about that. You see, a mood is, is, the, is, is one side of a dual reality. And Master even said that moodiness is caused by overindulgence in sense pleasures in the past. And earlier here when we were talking Uh, probably back even in the first sutra, we were talking about when we cling to to sense pleasures to try to make us happy, and when we try to experience them, there's always fear of their loss, and there's always exhaustion, which eventually comes, and then a sadness, which comes with that exhaustion. So you have the exhilaration of your whatever experience you're having that you think is so exciting, but there's always going to be the other side of it. So that's why Master said, moodiness, a tendency to fall, moodiness meaning into, into states of depression or unhappiness, are always the result of, in some incarnation, if not this one, that one pushed really hard to have always have those exciting up experiences and you set in motion this duality that was going to have to come to the other side. So Swamiji wanted to make it very clear, he's not experiencing a duality. It's not like, oh, he was so happy yesterday because he he was able to write and he finished this whole book and now he's too tired to write, so now he's really sad. He also said, interestingly in that email, that um, moods, the phrase he used, moods are not a corollary of old age. Merely because you're old doesn't mean that you have to become sad or depressed or anything like that. You're just old. You can't do the same things anymore. You only become moody about it if you have defined your life on the opposite, and then when it's gone, you feel badly. And he wanted to just to be very clear that he was not, he was not moving from exhilaration to depression and then from to depression to exhilaration. That he was in a state, well, he didn't say this, but I know that he is, he's in a state of, of calm vrittis, and he's just moving through these different, what I think are bhavs, and so the state of vairagya is a spiritual bhav, and he moved into it. But there was no opposite to it. Even if 
that Bob leaves him and he comes back, which, you know, he, he has his physical body improves a little bit, and then all of a sudden he can do more work, so he does more work. You know, when his physical body's not working, he's exhausted, there's no possibility of work, well, you know, it's just, it's over, let it go. But then his body comes back a little bit and he does a little more, but he's not moving from... Do you see the huge difference there? I was also just, you know, just feeling in oneself the difference between genuine detachment and like Ramakrishna used to joke about that. You know, a man comes to him, my wife has left me, my, you know, my children are gone and married, I've lost my job, I no longer have a home, I'm going to become a renunciate. And Ramakrishna said, my dear friend, you haven't renounced the world, the world has renounced you. <laughs> and it's, you just sort of even like assuming that, not because you really are done, but because your desires have been thwarted and now you're going to call it something else. That's, that's not vairagya. Vairagya is just knowing there's nothing here for me anymore. I only want God. Very subtle and very beautiful to contemplate. And the goal is the path. The way we get there is by just holding that thought in mind when we find ourselves caught up in the vrittis of, uh, of chitta, of our happiness dependence on this or that. And we feel free and think we're making spiritual progress when we're really just in a, in a mood in the sense that everything's going well and now I feel great. Which means that as soon as everything is not going well, then I won't feel so good anymore. And it's very subtle because if everything's going great, you should enjoy it. This is one of the things we talked about earlier. But your happiness is not dependent on it. This is where, last week we also said, when I was talking even about Master and his sense of extreme repudiation of the world, ah, but underneath there's always joy. Because we always know that we're in God's hands and what is there to ever to be not perfectly happy about? Very, very subtle. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, I think that does it. We're going to actually go into the next sutra. You know, just by the way, um, we talked last week about the words to that song, the Bengali song, that was such a contrast, and uh, Sai Ganesh was kind enough to give them to me, and they're so beautiful, I thought I'd tell you. Um, just to make this tape clear, when Swamiji was in Calcutta, um, just in March, I guess it was when he was in Calcutta, just this year, um, in, in that very talk, he was expressing these great differences of Bhav because he sang this Bengali song, which is extremely um, world-renouncing. And then as soon as he began to speak, he went into this mood of tremendous joy about his life with Master, this Bhav. I have to really make careful about the word there. Huh? But then uh, because Sai Ganesh understood the Bengali, he, because Swami sang in Bengali, we talked about this song. Here are the words. Ma, my wishes have not seen their end. My hopes are yet unfulfilled. Everything is already coming to an end. My only wish in this life, I call to you. Come now and take me in your lap. Everything is already coming to an end. And then are the, the verse that Master made into a chant, which is, In this world, Mother, no one can love me. In this world, they do not know how to love me. Where is true loving love? There my heart longs to be. Master translated it for us to sing it, but that was the meaning of the verse. 
And then he says, the song says, Through the betrayals I lost my desires. In the fire of trials I forgot all desire. I have cried for you for a long time and can no longer cry. My heart is crumbling from inside. Everything is already coming to an end. Wow, that's quite a song. I read that Saganish, but I didn't really realize until I read it out loud. But when he sang it, you know, it was just so... And you can go onto the video, onto the internet, and look up the Calcutta, just March 2013, and you can see Swami sing it, and he sings it so movingly, and he he knew what he was singing. I mean, how else, when we really stop and think about it, you know, we... Well, in the story of the guru, who, who the disciple comes and says, I want to know God, and the guru takes the disciple down to the river and holds the disciple under the water, and holds him under the water for a really, really long time, and then finally lets the disciple come up for air, and you know, barely alive, still gasping for air, and the guru says, when you were underwater, what did you want? He said, air. He said, did you want anything else? No, I just wanted air. And the guru says, when you want God that way, then come back to me. I mean, this is what they all tell us, and we feel inspired by it. But we have to really go deeply into that and ask ourselves what that really means. Yoga is the neutralization of all the vrittis. There's nothing, there's no core desire anymore around which energy swirls. Gone. Then, the sage rests tranquilly in the inner cell. Okay? But, you know, Patanjali is not for sissies. <laughs> you know, this is not a, oh, let's all get together and make each other feel good. It's not, it's not so. It's, it's very austere, just like it's, like it's reputed to be. And if we can be comfortable in ourselves, if we can just comfortably accept our own reality, it can be profoundly inspiring. If one finds oneself using it to feel badly about oneself, oh, I'm never there, I'm never going to be there, I'm never going to realize this, then you're creating another vritti. Bad idea. <laughs> but if you can honestly and joyfully say, wow, isn't this path extraordinary? Imagine that state of consciousness. You know, I'm not quite there yet, but someday, someday. And when it is your state of consciousness, you see, you don't feel deprived. We, we do this thing where we imagine that everything we want is going to be ripped away from us and we're going to have to rest tranquilly in the inner self, you see. And all our vrittis are going to get smashed and we're going to you know, have to have them all neutralized. No, it's completely opposite than that. It's just like things that you don't want anymore. I, I do, did you all ever eat Hostess cupcakes, those little chocolate Hostess cupcakes with the little squiggle of white on the top and the little blob of white in the middle? Very American. I mean, as a little kid, my, my parents never kept that stuff in the house. But every once in a while, you know, we'd put a couple of quarters together and go to the corner store, and every so often we'd get to buy one of those hosts. I mean, even the thought of it is nauseous to me. <laughs> I can sort of remember what it tastes like, and oh my God, I could hardly imagine, but oh, what a treat it was. I love them. <laughs> you know, and uh, it was, the candy bar, it was called a big hunk. You know, it was like a marshmallow nougat with peanuts in it. You know, just these things that they were so good as children. You just craved them. But now you think, that would be punishment to be put on a diet of those things. But 
what's the difference? It's just our tastes have changed, our experiences change. So anywhere that we can see how we've grown from thinking that something was highly pleasurable to realizing not that it's unpleasurable so much, is that there's a much more refined pleasure. Swamiji has said to us on more than one occasion, once the, the whole sexual energy, the thought that you have to have a human partner, I mean the romantic, once, once romantic and sexual desire leaves you, he said, you can't imagine why it ever held you. He said, it's, just, it's not only that it's not attractive to you, you can't imagine why anybody would be interested. And it just seems so, like, why would anyone want to eat a hostess cupcake? <laughs> you know, <laughs> depasya. And it's hard for us to imagine the things that we still define as pleasurable looking like depasya to us. But it's quite fun to uh, project yourself into that. What would it be like to, to understand, not that this is bad, but by comparison, it, it pulls me down instead of lifts me up. You see, that's, that's uh, Gandhi's advice. Don't ever give up a pleasure until you have replaced it with something you enjoy more. If, if you feel that you're denying and suffering, then it won't take you to God. But if you're just letting it go because something else is calling you... When I was talking in here about... Uh, the path of formal renunciation back in those early years, those first ten years at Ananda, I never got the right word out of my mouth. And the word was, if you are called to that life, and your heart calls you to something, even if you have to discipline yourself to follow it, you're called to it. It's not like you're pushing yourself toward it. It's that you're being called to it. And in religious vocations, that's the phrase they always use. But all of us, you know, in this Ananda life, we're called to this life. We didn't really have a choice. And it just, it was the most attractive thing we could see. Even if every once in a while you look over your shoulder and think longingly of a hostess cupcake. (laughs) But the problem is we're spoiled for it. We're spoiled. We're spoiled for the world. That was in other books that we've dealt with. We can't go back anyway. Because once you've touched this on any level, even if you think your experiences have been small, once you've touched into, you know, a real true um, divine upliftment, it's not satisfying anymore even when you try. So you're, you're caught between the worlds sometimes. We used to call it as nuns back there that we, we, um, we jumped into the water and started swimming for the island and we all thought we'd get to the island really fast and the island proved to be a lot farther away than we thought. <laughs> but we were a little too far from shore to go back <laughs> and the island was a little too far away for us to feel confident so we were treading water talking about what we were going to do next <laughs> but uh, we, were, we were in the water there was no place to go except continuing <laughs> alright, any other questions or thoughts? okay, sutra number one, four we're still in the first book and we're on the fourth sutra Otherwise, okay, so the otherwise follows after then, spiritually free, the sage abides tranquilly in his inner self. Otherwise, if one hasn't found inner peace, the vrittis cause the indwelling self to assume many outward forms. These are such amazingly succinct statements about such interesting things. The vrittis, the whirlpools of energy in the chakras, 
the, um, e- the ego-centered desires and likes and dislikes um, cause the indwelling self to assume many outward forms. I mean, what he's describing, although Swami doesn't say it at great length, um, is that that's why we incarnate again. We go up to the astral world, and, but we can't rest tranquilly in the inner self. Otherwise, if one hasn't found inner peace, those little whirlpools built around those desires, those thoughts, whatever they might be, cause us to take outward form. They assume outward form again. Um, Oh, they are the whole power. They are karma. Riches are karma, if you want to think about it like that. Yeah, of course they do. Because they are our pattern of energy. And we are nothing but a pattern of energy. You're no, you know, this. I mean, how did this come to be precisely like it is? I mean, what, what happens? That sperm and ovum come together. And, I mean, uh, parents who, I've never been pregnant, but women who have been pregnant... Talk about you know, the personality and consciousness of the person that's inside the womb, you know, from a time long before there's any actual form to measure. Women who've given birth to more than one child will say that each child from conception was different because what enters in is the energetic pattern, all the chakras, which is to say the vrittis. The vrittis are stored in the chakras according to their level of vibration relative to delusion and spiritual freedom. And so it's the force of that magnetism will come out into outward manifestation because it needs to have the opportunity to be a great pianist. It needs to be the opportunity to be a beautiful woman. It needs to be in an iron lung. You know, it just, it needs all these different things to to happen because the vritti is creating magnetism and what that represents is a, it's actually a false commitment. A commitment to, a, to something as the source of happiness is not really the source of happiness, but we're not going to be able to rest tranquilly in our inner self until we have experienced it. So the vritti requires us to take outward form. And the vritti takes outward form is how they describe it, meaning that all the little bits and pieces stored in our chakras collectively determine where we will be born and what we are like you know, this is, where, this is where you become just absolutely trapped by the philosophical fact that nothing that happens to you is unfair or undeserved or caused by anyone else's stupidity, even if it appears to be caused by other people's stupidity, that you wouldn't be in the way of that stupidity if your vritti had not taken the outward form that, oh, look, we get to be the victim of this person's stupidity the object of this person's stupidity. You know, he's just, Patanjali is brutal. There's no other word for it. Okay. Yes, go ahead. The Vrithis settle at various levels. How difficult can this be? Turn it on. Okay. The Vrithis settle at various levels dependent on... the ch- Okay, the Vrithis... Um, live in the chakras. Um, yeah. So the chakras vibrate, you know, you know in, in one way of thinking about it, from the lowest to the highest chakra, they represent different vibrations of consciousness, and the vritti, depending on what it is, vibrates at a certain level of consciousness, and so they are stored in the chakras. 
And they, when, you, when you people who can read the chakras or feel the chakras um, and your horoscope is related to all of that, then they see that there's pat- these patterns of energy. And so if you do many, many spiritual things, and this is where we're coming to in a moment, there's, you know, there's, there's better and worse vrittis. You know, all vrittis are... All vrittis are less desirable than no vrittis, but among vrittis, some are better than others. <laughs> so if you create a lot of energy in your chakras, in the higher chakras, toward spiritual practice, toward God consciousness, um, then those will also take manifest as outward form. I mean, some of you are not so old, and you, you manage to manifest a spiritual life at a, at, while your body is still relatively young, because the vritti in you was so strong that it, it manifested in that way very quickly. You know, I, I myself, of course, am an example of that. In my late teens, I, I, the, the Vritti took the outward form of the opportunity to live a spiritual life because that was the fruit of many past lives of the same kind of work. And I mean, others of us who, who are not young anymore, but who started substantially many years ago or didn't, it's not like it matters, but you see, it takes, it's not like they're all bad. Some of them bring you the, oppor- the best opportunities. In the Gita it says, you know, best of all, you'll be born into a family of yogis. Such births are hard to come by because yogis don't have a whole bunch of kids, I guess is the reason that they say that. You know, they tend not to have large families or any children at all. So it's a very fortunate birth. Well, so we have a lot of vrittis. We got a heck of a lot of vrittis, yeah. What determines... You don't uh, even want to know how many vrittis you have. Uh So in any given incarnation, what determines which vrittis are up? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they they can't all just come out at once. No, of course not. Um, So I don't know. There's some kind of pattern that something is is working. That's You could call it the will of God, which is a non-answer, but everything is harmonious. It's a woven... Well, what happens is everything is a harmonious result of the energy you've put in before. So it's really not so random. You don't just like go to the astral world and then randomly say, what will I do next time? You know, I was a skydiver last time and, you know, died when my parachute didn't open. I think I'll be a piano tuner. You know, it's just like you don't just choose it out of the hat. It's your energy. You're flowing through a certain... um, trajectory, and that trajectory will continue until it's exhausted, or until you've, you know, I remember just just in this life when I was involved in something and I wasn't able to really bring it to, I I, I didn't feel to karmic completion, and you know, you always have that question, do I just keep sticking with this and see if I can, so I said no, basically he said, you've gone as far as you can go right now, he said, you need to put that particular challenge aside and develop yourself in other ways. And then eventually you'll come back around to it. But to just beat your head against it right now is not going to take you anywhere because it's not there to clear up. So in one incarnation, the same thing. You want to finish something, maybe it's just it's not timely. Your consciousness isn't ready for it. And then it, and, you know, that's why you can totally relax. Because if you don't work it out now, you get to work it out later. I mean, some people don't consider that relaxing, but, you know, I think it's relaxing Actually, here's what Swami said. I forgot to read it. An interesting aspect of the spiritual path, even if unsettling for the neophyte, he grants that to us, is the assurance, this is the word he uses, that whatever your faults and shortcomings, God will see to that 
that your nose gets rubbed in them. <laughs> That's what he writes. <laughs> if, of course, you sincerely want to free yourself from those shortcomings. So you have a vritti that says, I want to be spiritually free. And then you have another vritti that says, but not yet. And the two of them work in concert together. If, of course, you sincerely want to free yourself from these shortcomings. A quali- a, an aspect of that is something I observed both in my own life and in the lives of others. I have, I have had certain deep-seated karmic lessons that have have defined much of my incarnation. I feel like from the age of about 60, which was not that many years ago, but starting a little before that, I kind of like closed a chapter and became a new person. I became a new person about every 12 years. Um, But I became notably a new person more recently. Um, But I had certain karmic things that I had to struggle with, just, you know, false notions, uh, self-definitions that were not helpful, many of which were encouraged by my upbringing and my birth family. I don't mean encouraged by those people, but the experience of growing up in that particular family made many of my faults worse. And I actually, when I first came on the path, I kept thinking, was I drunk? You know, given that these particular characteristics caused me so much grief, why didn't I incarnate into a family that would have brought me up in a way that would have countered them and balanced them? instead of just making them worse. Um, And I had a very good upbringing, so I'm talking on a subtle level. Just the company you keep, the orientation. You know, one has bad habits, and everybody in your family has the same bad habits, so nobody even knows it's either bad or a habit. We just think this is the way life is. This is the way we are. I mentioned to you that I didn't know the difference between debate and conversation until I was 50. Because we always just debated. We never conversed. You didn't just have these sort of casual, how can I encourage you? You had these, you know, Here, here's my point of view and here's your point of view. And from one, from one side for a yogi, it's a good thing. You know, it's for, as a jnani trying to find the truth, it was positive training, but just a certain disharmony in my relationships, let's put it like that. Um, but just, that's just a random example. But, but I realized one day, oh, if I had been in a family that didn't make it worse, I wouldn't have noticed. Just as simple as that. That's what it means to rub your nose in something. It had to, it had to, I had to be pushed farther and farther in the direction I had chosen until I noticed that it was taking me someplace. I don't really want to be here. But when I was only halfway there, he was still working for me. It had to get a lot worse before I could see that I really didn't want to be there at all. And then, you know, the uh, Sunday service, uh, yeah, which was ever two, on Sunday, <laughs> two days ago, a thought had occurred to me that morning how much we want, the, the distinction I was making is we want to be successful often more than we want to be excellent. You know, if we can get success without having to get personal excellence, will settle for success. But as a devotee, the only thing we're striving for is, is the personal perfection. And many people are really just looking to be successful, and if they don't have to perfect themselves in the process, why would I? Why would I put out that effort? Or it allows you to protect your weaknesses and so on. But somewhere or another, if you are sincere, your nose is going to get rubbed. It's such a terrible phrase, isn't it? Even the 
if it's even though it's unsettling for the neophyte to hear this, yes, what were you going to say? It's a great system. It's a great system, and actually, a, a, a later sutra. There's a few in here that have really stuck in my mind. A later sutra starts with the includes the phrase that, that one of the characteristics of a man of wisdom, or however it phrases it, is that he understands that progress comes through suffering. And, I'm, and I've, I've played that thought out a lot of times in my mind, and Patanjali has it really clearly stated. One of the things, a, a stage on the spiritual path, is that we recognize that suffering is an essential component to growth. And we keep thinking in our minds that we can separate those two, but Patanjali himself tells us that they go together and that when we reach a certain stage of spiritual understanding, we just know that. And it's not so much that we personally have to continue to suffer suffer because um, the sage rests tranquilly in inner peace. He doesn't have to be suffering all the time, but we feel the suffering all around us. And it's, it's worse. It's really worse than your own because your own you have some control over. But when you're watching the people around you, you know, and all that they have to go through, but the man of wisdom understands that this is just the way it works. And you don't rebel. Um, Nishkama, let's pass the microphone. Truly, the, that may be said about the man of wisdom, but I think uh, that we all uh, realize that truth uh, firsthand with, by direct experience on our way to wisdom. Mm-hmm. In other words, we don't escape suffering. We have to go through it in order to get there. And more the, more the way you want to look at it is, oh, if I hadn't had that very difficult experience, I would never have gotten to this stage of freedom. And that's the mistake that uh, the Christian Catholic interpretation puts on it is that somehow the suffering itself, even the Jews, not even the Jews, what am I saying? Also the Jews, that the suffering itself is somehow a meaningful thing. No, 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 the suffering is a means to wisdom. And if we're wise enough. Did you have a comment, Nishikama? Because I want to tell a joke. (laughs) I love this joke. Um, There was a Jewish man and he um, was making himself a piece of bread with butter and jelly on it and it accidentally fell on the floor and it fell jelly side up. And he recognized the extraordinarily serious spiritual implications of that. So he picked it up, and he took it to his temple where there was a group of wise rabbis, and he said, you know, the bread fell jelly side up. He said, perhaps we are no longer the chosen people. (laughs) Right? Because the bread always falls, everything falls jelly side down if you're the chosen people. The rabbis saw the problem also, and they took possession of the, jelly toast, and they put it in the middle of their table, and they searched for a week, they opened all their books, they looked at all the commentaries on all the different scriptures, they discussed and they discussed, and after a long time of careful contemplation, they came to a conclusion, they invited the man in, and they said, we want you to know that we believe that we are still the chosen people, the explanation we believe is that you put the jelly on the wrong side. So, <clears throat> I love that joke. Okay. Now, let's go on. Let's see. 
the, the other aspect of this uh, sutra number four, which Swamiji emphasizes here, is that when our vrittis manifest in outward form, we don't really walk around thinking, I am, I am a manifested vritti. <laughs> you know, we, we, we identify with whatever form the self has taken. I am a woman, I am a man, I am healthy, I am arrogant, I am humble, I am talented or not. And these, all of these vrittis, because the vritti itself has caused us to manifest in this way. Now the vrittis, of course, are not things. The vrittis are states of consciousness. Think of them as karma too. They're states of consciousness, they're levels of understanding, they're unlearned lessons, they're, they're false ideas of where our happiness comes from, they're, they're definitions of reality. And so when they take visible form, they manifest as something, all the things that we see and that we call ourselves. But merely because the, those riches have forced the manifestation, it doesn't mean that the indwelling self has actually become those things. We are not our riches, is what Swami says. And he says, you know, the ego nature can also, also lifts up. I mean, some of those vrittis take us, are positive vrittis, which is what we're going about to talk about in a moment, in the sense that they move us towards spiritual freedom, and some of them take us farther and farther away from spiritual freedom. But even those vrittis that are more elevated and more refined in their expression, we're, we're, no, we're still not that ego-identified um, vortex of energy. We are, are always and always have been the infinite self untouched by these realities. These, um, this is only a mistaken, a mistaken identity on our own part. And once again, from the point of view of how do we live with this, we realize that my karma has brought me into this form. My vrittis have taken outward form in this way. But, it, but I am still the indwelling self merely watching this play. You know, this is my horse, but I don't have to have my happiness or my unhappiness dependent upon it. This is my life. This is the appropriate expression of my, my nature and my realization at this point. I can observe and discriminate and see what it is. I can use buddhi and ahankara to see what it is, but I don't have to commit um, my sense of well-being, my happiness and my sadness to the surface of the sea live always on the bottom. It comes always to the same point. Okay, does that make sense? Let's take a break. Then we'll go on to number five. Okay. So, let's start again. And does anybody have any, uh, I know, does anybody have any thoughts or questions that we need before we go on to the next sutra? All right. Okay, sutra number five says, there are five classifications of vrittis. Now we're going to find out, you know, what, what groups the vrittis fall into. And it starts in this sutra, it just names the first classification, which there are painful vrittis and there are painless vrittis. Okay, this is, this is an important point that we're trying to understand. A vritti is a, an ego-defined vortex of energy, but... But we have to realize that because, you know, we, we tend to think of ego as a bad thing and it isn't such a good thing for the infinite self to be identified with limitation. At the same time, the fact that human beings have um, a highly developed ego is what enables us also to make spiritual progress. 
because we are self-aware enough to be able to reflect on our own experience and to be able to use our willpower to direct our experience in what we perceive to be our state of greatest happiness. So the vritti of wanting to go into a convent when you're young, of wanting to find your spiritual family, of hoping to find your guru, you know, to, to learn to meditate, to find a course of happiness, that's still a vritti. But self-evidently, to identify yourself with that, that direction of energy instead of, I want to have power over my enemies from my past lives, you know, I want to have as much sexual indulgence as I can possibly have, those, the ego still has, is reflecting on its own experience and choosing a direction, but that's the fish, the fish who's caught in the net burrowing deeper into the mud, thinking he's going to get out of the net, and where in fact he's just getting caught deeper and deeper into the net. But when our ego awareness and life experience tells us, no, you know, this is where freedom is, and then we begin to have a strong desire to in- enhance that that sense of expansive awareness. This was the question that Arthur asked a few weeks ago. You know, why, why would we do anything? Well, because we, we, we get free by stages. And we're, we're going to have ego-identified realities, so we just want to ego-identify with more and more refined and expansive levels rather than contractive and gross in the sense of not subtle, you know, materialistically defined. So painful and painless are those vrittis that take us out of suffering and those vrittis that take us more deeply into suffering. Um, He calls them self-developed inclinations, desires and attachments. Um, Some of our self-definitions will cause us pain. Others will give us pleasure. He said, but no self-definition can bring happiness there's nothing that the, as long as you're, because self, all self-definitions are self-limiting. And so this is the way he ex- explains it. Being kind to others, for example, he says, does not in itself produce happiness. For true happiness is a quality of the soul. But sharing with others can only help to remove one of the basic causes of unhappiness by removing a layer of egoism from the giver's consciousness. Do you see the subtle difference there? What we're talking about is right action gradually disengages us from limited self-identification. And it's not the right action that is you know, pleasing to our... That it's not the right action itself that gives us an expanding sense of joy. It's the fact that through that right action, the, um, our sense of egoic identity is gradually dissolved. And that's where all the practices of religion are all designed to dissolve our ego identity and to dissolve all self-identity so that we can understand ourselves as we truly are and rest tranquilly in the inner self and have the neutralization of all vrittis. This is a huge difference between almost all religions and the true practice of yoga. And this is where... Every week we say in the Festival of Light, Jesus appeared to the great master Babaji and said, you know, my people have forgotten my teachings. They, they, they worship at the lower altar of good works, but, but the, the noble taper of inner communion burns low, which is 
they, they're serving and they're trying to uplift the poor and they're trying to cure social injustice and they're trying to feed everyone who's hungry and they have actually defined that as Jesus' teachings. Whereas what Jesus asked us to do was to enter into the kingdom of God, which is the inner kingdom of divine consciousness. And the religion is the communion, which is to, to realize who we are. Serving others is a way of breaking ego identity that will then free us to return um, because what we've done is we've taken our energy out and tied it up with this ego identity and when we can break that the energy automatically rises into a higher state of awareness so it's not like you know it's, uh, it's a bad thing to help other people but it is not in itself um, uh, a religious practice it's a misunderstanding. Do you see the difference? And even Mother Teresa, who was the great saint of social service to the poor, I find it very interesting that, that you know, two of the most famous and popular and world-revered holy people in the world have been Mother Teresa of Calcutta and the, the, the Dalai Lama, just you know, universally recognized. The Dalai Lama is about war and politics, and Mother Teresa is about the poor, the underprivileged, the un- under classed, whatever you would call them, which are the two things that our age is obsessed with. And so we were given two very unusual examples of how to deal with those things in a completely different way. But Mother Teresa herself, who is out there doing what a lot of people, what a lot of, of, of Christian churches define as living Christianity, because she's out there living with the poor, but she doesn't think that's what she's doing. And when, when you listen carefully to what she says and writes, she, she, she does not define her life as taking care of the poor. She defines her life as doing what Jesus asked her to do. And the implication of that is if Jesus asked her to do something else, she would turn her back on the poor without thinking for a second about their well-being. Because her true religion is communion. And it's communion with her guru and obedience to her guru. And because he sent her out to do that, that's what she does. But that's the reason that she does it. It's com- you see how completely different that is. And it's a, it's a point that's lost on almost everyone. Uh, but Swamiji here is emphasizing it. Is it in this book? I'm trying to remember if it's in this book. There's some book where he talks at length. What book would it have been? No, it's in the promise. I think it's in the promise of immortality. And he even talks at length about how... Let me try to find this. Um, how too much charity is not really good for the people that you're giving it to. Because people need to learn to put out their own will to magnetize to them what they need. And he, he was talking especially when you, when you institutionalize the charity like we do with our government and then we train people to, to take without giving back and to receive without putting ener- out energy even though it looks like a good thing to do, it isn't even really a good thing to do. Now of course you have to say that and I can say that in this context with people who understand what I'm talking about. It's not the Marie Antoinette attitude when you're confronted with the starving masses you know, let them eat cake. That's not what we're talking about. 
But he's really talking about the extent to which we have to really examine these ideas and not just sort of mindlessly think that it's a good thing. Oh, yeah, we should, you know, take from the rich and give to the poor. Well, sometimes the poor, if they are poor, sometimes we find ourselves in a karmic condition in which we have a certain challenge to meet. We don't want to take away from a person the opportunity to learn that lesson. In other words, we, we want to help them, but we want to help them in a way that allows them to overcome the fundamental karma and not, that not, doesn't encourage them in a wrong attitude of passivity that got them in trouble in the first place. You see the difference here? So that's where he says being kind to others, being charitable to others, reduces our sense of egoism naturally. You know, if I have a certain amount of money and I want this for myself and this for myself and this for myself and this for myself, and then all of a sudden it occurs to me that maybe you would like something, and I think, hmm, well, you know, maybe I'll give you a little corner of this. No, it's like we're, this is all about self-aggrandizement and my ego and what it wants and what, it will, what will make me happy. And when we begin to see the reality of a bigger world than just our ego self, that breaks down our sense of limitation. You know, we're good old Ananda. We get to learn this so fabulously because we are always fundraising for something. Um, Gita McGilloway, who's now Gita Matlock, she's a married woman at Ananda Village, a grown lady, and she uh, was raised by Padma and Hriman. And Padma and Hriman have always been involved, her parents are Padma and Hriman, and uh, they've always been involved in expansive projects at Ananda, and even when Padma was raising Gita and her brother, um, she was still very busy, and sometimes the babies would come to events or come to meetings, and when she brought a little, I don't know whether it was Kashi, the, her son, or Gita, her daughter, to some meeting, I just, uh, about, it was a fundraising meeting, I said, you know, in Suzuki violin, from a very, very young age, the children hear the, vi- the tunes that they later learn to play, and a, a good friend of mine who grew up on the Suzuki violin method and became a professional musician, basically said he could never remember a time when he wasn't playing the violin. It just had been part of him, his life since he was so young. He, always, he just always played the violin. I said, Gita McGilloway will never remember a time when she wasn't fundraising. <laughs> it's the Suzuki method of teaching fundraising. And in fact, Gita is in the business of fundraising now that I think about it. <laughs> because she was always hearing people fundraise. Okay, Now, it's not just fundraising that I'm talking about, but the point being... You know, why should we sacrifice ourselves? Why should we sacrifice our own pleasure? Because it is our own pleasure. And we get a bigger and bigger definition of where security comes from. And Swami even says here, and I didn't read it before, but it's beautiful. Experience over many years has convinced me that if we really repose our trust in God and ask nothing for ourselves, he or she, for God is both and also neither, will supply supply all our needs. Long experience has convinced me also that Divine Mother will protect me. Those are very powerful phrases. You know, so every time, that's where we're always trying to get people to tithe. It's one of my, well, here I go again, I might as well just talk into the wind and see if anybody notices one more time. But the whole point of tithing, as opposed to just donating, is that you say that a set percentage of what I have does not belong to me. So I'm not being like a great generous person by giving this 10% back. Look at me, 
how generous I am, we just say right from the start, and this is, you know, a very ancient practice for very good reason, that we take responsibility for a greater reality and we, we behave with gratitude at all times, recognizing that the fact that we live and breathe and eat and have anything to spend is not really the result of our own cleverness, but is God's, God taking care of us and giving us the opportunity. So we express that gratitude on an ongoing basis by the first 10% that we earn, or percentage of any kind. It works with any percentage, but 10 is the tradition. It just goes back. It goes back to the source of my inspiration in gratitude for my life. Just I recognize that what the, what the true source of everything is, and I honor it. And of course, people are afraid to do that. You know, people, I joke about this, but it isn't really a joke. If they're poor, they think they can't afford it. And if they're rich, the size of the check just freaks them out, right? So they can't do it. But there are very few ways in which we can actually practice trusting God. And giving a fixed percentage of your income is such a, a, an absolutely exquisite way to do it. If you get a dollar, you give a dime. If you get a dime, you give a penny. If you get a million dollars, you give a hundred thousand. It just is what it is. And the million dollar gift that was not so long ago given to Ananda came, it was a 10% tithe from people whose first 10% tithe was $50. And they just did 10% all the way through, and when it turned out to be a million dollars, it was just a million dollars. It was the same percentage all the way through. And I think in no small measure, because of their loyalty to tithing, when the first $50 out of a $500 monthly income was not an easy thing to do, but the principle was well established. And that's, again, one of the ways we break our ego identity. Um, and the mere fact that it's very hard for people to actually do that indicates how powerful it actually is when you do it. It activates all kinds of divine laws, but above all, it activates in yourself. If you can't quite go to 10, the concept of a percentage that's fixed... Now, here's the rest of it. That doesn't, that doesn't uh, uh, excuse you from the necessity also to donate, <laughs> because donating is different. Donating is saying... I have extra money, I'll give it to this cause. I like this cause, I'll do it for this. It's needed for that. The 10% is not, is not your money. When I used to, I have a very simple financial mind. And uh, when I used to be traveling and lecturing, and I just, I would, people would pay me, and I would just, as soon as money would come to me, I would divide it. I, ne- I never put the 10% into my wallet or my bank account where I'd, it just never, because it was never mine. I didn't put it in and then take it out, because then you look at it and you think it's yours. <laughs> I mean, my life was so simple, I could do that. But I had two envelopes in my purse. I had mine and the other one. And so the only one I ever worked with was mine, and if I had enough extra, I could give some of that away too. I never thought about that other 10%, because it just wasn't mine. It was the commission for being here. Someone, I, I heard something recently that was very touching to me. It was somebody trying to understand... It was actually, it was a, it was a, it was in, a, it was in fiction. It wasn't, it wasn't real life, but it was a true-to-life fictional story about someone trying to understand whether or not there was a God. And 
this uh, young person was talking and they said they, they had never believed in God, but then they realized that at various times in their lives they had felt a deep sense of gratitude for an experience of life itself, not to you for doing that or you for doing that, but just an overwhelming, all-pervasive sense of gratitude. And then the, the character in the story said, and it occurred to me that I must be thanking someone. And that, there, and that in, intuitively I seemed to know that I, I needed to be grateful to someone because I could feel that it had been given to me rather than generated by myself. Isn't that sweet? That was like the, the mathematician who told me that he became a believer instead of an atheist because in math the answer is always beautiful or harmonious and if it's not, it's not true. And he said, and he realized that if he was, if the idea that there was no God was neither a beautiful nor a harmonious answer to the question of life. And he thought if it wasn't true in math, it wasn't true in life either. And he began to turn it around and look for the beautiful and harmonious answer, which was the presence of God. It's very sweet how all the poetic ways that it can all be turned. So, any comments or thoughts about any of this? Yes, please. I just thought it was interesting in the life of Mother Teresa, um, relating it to the parables of Christ that we talked about before, how there, um, when Christ was asked why he spoke in parables, basically the answer was that people under, can understand a parable on many different levels. Mm-hmm. And I realized that um, the life of Mother Teresa is like that. To her closest followers, they knew about her deep communion with Christ. But to just the casual observer thought, oh, well, she's helping the poor and that's what she's devoted her life to. And so, you know, people whose reality is only themselves in helping the poor would expand their own reality just through that simple act. Absolutely. She was a great saint. I met her a number of times because when we would go to India, our pilgrimage group, when we, she was living in Calcutta usually and we would go to her ashram, her convent in Calcutta. And um, if you went at 5.30 in the morning and went to Mass... Then she, right after her morning, early morning mass, she would meet with foreign groups. And so we would uh, get to just spend 10 minutes or so with her. And we, were you, were you, did you meet her also? No. But Chittambar did. It did Sarah met her also. Um, and uh, we would sing, we, we sang uh, songs from the oratorio for her usually. The first time we saw her, we, you know, she's very, she was a very businesslike person. She didn't have a lot of sentiment. And, uh, we were trying to think how to tell her who we were because we weren't Catholic. So uh, we realized if we sang our music, she would, she would see us. So we did and she did. And when we would come back after that once, the second or third year, she turned to her nun and said, uh, we should pray for these people. They come every year and they're very devoted. And she didn't really know anything about us. It's just that she could, because she was like that, she could feel that energy. But she was a very... I, business-like is the only way I can think to say it. She just was a real no-nonsense lady. Just no, there was no space in her world for sentiment. That's how she appeared to me. And she was very small. And the impression of her is that she just poured her life out. She was Krishnadas, who's a small man. There's a picture of him, and she's way below him. And, you know, we're all, everybody's leaned over. And, um, and I was inspired by her presence 
But I was more inspired the last time we went after she had died and they had her tomb was right there in the convent. And when I sat and meditated next to her tomb, I felt much more energy than I'd ever felt sitting next to her. And I'm not going to declare anything from that, but it was very, it was notable to me that that was true and conceivably, you know, by the end of her life she had overcome. (coughs) Or I was having a good day that day. It's like you just don't really know. But I, I was very struck by the spiritual energy of <clears throat> her, her, Mandir. Excuse me a moment. <coughs> and you know that was a place too where what looked like hard hardship for people was for them freedom. I mean, you're sitting there, very, 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 very plain. You know, just the plainest kind of of simple Indian living, cement courtyard, cement rooms, and right after the mass, everybody would follow this set pattern, and the nuns would come out and. They would be washing out, they, you know, they had two saris. They were wearing one of them, they'd wash out the other one and hang it on the line before they went out. So the next morning they could put on the clean one and wash the other one. You know, you think of your closet full of clothes. And, oh, it's very embarrassing. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, I'm sort of trying not to go on, but I guess I might have to. So I think we've covered that pretty much. So, sutra number six. The vrittis, continuing the five classifications of vrittis, we understand painful and painless are those that, you know, pleasure, pleasurable and painful, and also uplifting or not uplifting. The vrittis, um, the vrittis are, the five classifications of vrittis are, one, painful and painless, two, right and wrong conceptions of what is. Right and wrong conceptions of what is. That, is. that goes a long ways. Three, imagination. Four, sleep. And five, memory. Five classifications of vrittis. All vrittis, in stirring the waters of feeling, distort the reality that is soul bliss. You know, I was joking with you. I wasn't joking. I was speaking of it and trying to be slightly humorous about it. That I there was a lot of uh, communication in the last few days, and it was all centered around the uh, the previews of the Ananda movie, and and there was sort of a certain uh, lack of clarity about what we were going to do and why we were going to do it and where we were going to do it, and I had strong feelings in the matter, and it was extremely interesting to me how the quality and actually the words in an email can shift depending on what, what kind of a filter you have over your consciousness when you're reading it. And, I, you know, one tries, I certainly try hard to stay centered, but it's just amazing to me, just the slightest distortion of the feelings, which, as he says right here, um, <clears throat> all vrittis in stirring the waters of feeling distort the reality that is soul bliss. And when, when one really grasps that on the deepest level, that's when vairagya comes, that's when all ego-based self-definitions or desires look equally unattractive to you. You know, right now we still have this subconscious bias that some of them are better than others because they feel better than others. But 
when we fully understand that anything that stirs the waters, either toward pleasure or pain, just causes us not to see things quite as they are, and we don't quite see the bliss, then they all begin to look like hostess um, cupcakes to us. <laughs> They're simply not. You just don't want it anymore. And you can't imagine why you ever did compare it to the calmness of soul bliss. So, you know, all karma is bad karma because you have it at all. All vrittis are not good because you have them at all. But he, um, you know, Patanjali gives us these five ways of thinking about it. So I'm actually going to stop at this point because it's, I can't really finish any of these in the time allotted. So I'm going to stop just a couple of minutes early so we can have a clean slate for next week. Okay, any questions or comments before we call it a night? All right, thank you very much. <laughs>